Glory to Jesus Christ. Glory forever. Okay, welcome back everybody to our study of the Evergatinas. And we're picking up this evening on page 190 of the first volume, if you're following along. And we are picking up with the last paragraph on the page. And if you remember this hypothesis has to do with uh, avoiding things uh, within the world that lead to distraction for us, distraction of the heart, the mind, uh, but also that can have a negative influence in terms of uh, giving rise to the passions within us. And the, the next hypothesis, that the one that follows this, is very much the same, but also that has to do more with relationships that we are involved in. Uh, the ones that can you know, lead us away from having Christ at the center of our life and that can even do us harm spiritually. And uh, so the fathers are pretty clear about this, especially given the vocation that they were called to, the, the, the deep solitude of the desert and of their particular cell. And, uh, and so holding to their vocation while uh, I think giving themselves over to certain things in the world would have been contrary, you know, a great contradiction for them. And this is what comes through in the writings tonight. So again, we're on page 190, the last paragraph on the page. What then do we who are outside the world have in common with worldly affairs that we should still wish to learn about them? For the monk who has renounced the world and placed his neck under the sweet yoke of the Lord no longer has authority over himself, but hastens without ever turning back to cleave the furrows in the hollows of humility which abound in divine wheat and are drenched with the heavy rain of the heavenly and life-bestowing spirit, by whose drops the soul is gladdened and gushes forth divine thoughts. Indeed, he who wishes to live in peace and to converse with God unceasingly with a mind undistracted should neither associate with many people nor be constantly leaving his cell. So, to engage in the things of the world. The monk uh, chooses this life in order to, in, uh, or in order in, that in one step, he might step away from anything that might be distract, a distraction to this life of unceasing prayer and remembrance of God, monos, alone with the alone, as it were, that anything that would be contrary to that would uh, certainly stand out and be an obstacle for them. And yet that was the constant temptation that the, whenever the, the mind and the heart would lose that stillness, uh, there would be a tendency to be drawn to the things of the world or whenever that stillness became difficult to maintain, one would seek to uh, distract oneself, even if it's conversation with the monk in a neighboring cell. And so uh, what we find Antiochus reminding uh, the monks about is the sweetness of, of the, the, the yoke that they've taken on freely and all that it offers uh, the, the, to cleave the furrows in the hollows of humility, the divine wheat that's drenched with the heavy rain of the life-bestowing spirit. And so it's not uh, simply a matter of endurance or ascetical perfection. It's really about experiencing intimacy with God by conforming ourselves uh, to Christ in the most powerful way. That is a humble life, uh, one that is wholly given over to God and to, to his will. 
And so he, he sets this up against the contradiction that often we see within the heart of valuing the things of this world above that relationship. And so the ideal for the monk is to live in peace and converse with God unceasingly. And in this, they become a model for us in, in, in terms of what we would desire and value the most. That despite living in the world, still what we would prize above all things is our relationship with God and the opportunities that we have to enter into the peace of the kingdom. And uh, that we, we too, within our own lives, would uh, seek to shape a life that has a kind of simplicity to it that allows us to maintain this kind of unceasing prayer, uh, even if it is not as constant as, we, as what we would see within the monks. Nonetheless, we would still want to be fostering this remembrance of God in the things that we do in our day-to-day -day life. In such a one, I'm sorry, if such a one ever needs to associate with anyone, he should have contact with spiritual fathers or fellow strugglers or other monks who require help, for such contact is reckoned to be conducive to theological discussion. And in any case, he will either benefit or be benefited. Should worldly people approach us for spiritual aid, let us converse with them only by a few words, seasoned by divine salt, and dismiss them. For they will be morally more edified by a short spiritual conversation than by lengthy worldly discussion. Above all, let us work with them by prayer and teach them by virtue through our deeds. For while it is good to help inquirers through our words, it is far better to work with them through virtue and through prayer. So, even within the monastic life, that uh, there has to be, again, sort of a constant reminder that a conversation is, is to be kept to a minimum, because this is one of the ways that we're tempted, if you remember from some of our other readings, to vain conversation, gossip, uh, talking about things that really will bear no fruit for us, and if anything, agitate the heart. And so if they are to step out of it, it is to engage others uh, out of love, either uh, seeking to help them or seeking help for our, ourselves. And always, I love the phrase, only by a few words seasoned with divine salt, that we would want our words, as it were, to have the grace of God within them and have our words be shaped in such a way that they become something that is that preserves the goodness of the heart of the other, that we would never want to put another person, person in harm's way by the things that we say. And so we always give a kind of care uh, to the talk that we have with others to make sure that it is seasoned with this divine salt. And, uh, and better than words, ultimately, are virtues and deeds. So to bear witness by the way that we live our life and the virtues that people see within us and by the, the deeds of love. And again, I think, you know, as those living in the world, this is sound counsel for us. Always what we want to be uh, the, the most provocative thing in our life or that which speaks most to the heart of the other is the love that they would see within us in our actions, the way that we engage them. 
that our love would speak to them of the love of Christ and that they would see within our faces and our word and hear within our words, the love of Christ. And so, you know, in our day and age, you know, things have become very verbal and visual. And we often don't think about the impact that that has upon us or upon others. And, uh, and it's often seen, I think, uh, introverts are unfairly <laughs> treated in our culture. Uh, you know, extrovert, extroversion is often prized. You know, someone who has this capacity to engage a broad audience or it, it seems to be energized by that. And in fact, psychologically, that's true that extroverts uh, find that engagement with the world and conversation with others, ideas uh, to be something that uh, gives them a kind of energy, excites them, and this kind of engagement with other people. Uh, and for them, it becomes very important to be able to step back from that, that they don't lose themselves in it, and so begin to live their life on the shallows. Introverts, you know, have this preference and find strength uh, by being able to step back from the world and to gather themselves in order then to be able to engage fruitfully. And they often see things in a, a more subjective kind of fashion. So to be able to enter into the world, I think takes a lot of kind of introspection then to be able to enter into it freely without it becoming something that is agitating. Uh, but there is this need and very deep need, I think on their part to step back from that uh, in order not uh, to be exhausted by it. And, and so in some ways, I think they, they might find it easier to retreat because there is a definite need in them on a psychological and emotional level. The problem is, is that they can get lost in that in their own subjective experience and lose sight of the other. And that other can also be God, God himself, as well as being attentive to other people in love. And so, but regardless of our natural temperament, I think what the fathers tell us here is very important to simplify life, to be aware of what's going on in our minds and our hearts, to be cautious of, of how we speak in a, in a given day. And so to, if you were to underline one thing, I would think it would be that little phrase about, you know, few words seasoned with divine salt. It's a very powerful image. And uh, I think being able to hold on to that, that we want our words to preserve that which is good within ourselves and with others, within others. Anything in these few paragraphs that anyone would like to comment on or any questions? Okay. From Abba Isaiah, letter G. Abba Isaiah said, if anyone speaks unprofitable words to you, do not listen to him lest you destroy your soul. Do not let such a person embarrass you into going along with him. Do not put up with his words by saying, in my heart, I do not accept them. Do not say this for you are not superior to the first form man, whom God fashioned with his own hand and who was harmed by evil conversation with the serpent. Run away then and do not listen. Be sure that when you flee bodily, you do not try to find out what it is that you missed. 
For if you hear the slightest bit of a word, the demons will not only not fail to exploit the fragment that you heard, but will slay your soul with it. When you flee, flee completely. Wow. Abba Isaiah pulls no punches in, in this, and it's in, incredibly challenging. So not to listen to unprofitable speech or that which is sinful. And again, in our day and age, this requires a kind of self-discipline, but a kind of clear identity, too, about who we are and what is of greatest value to us and, uh, and what is going on and who it is that dwells within us and within our hearts. And so when such conversations uh, arise, you know, I think our tendency is exactly what the, the Desert Fathers speak of here, is that we will tell ourselves psychologically, okay, I don't want to be inhospitable. I, I don't want to be uncharitable. And so I want to find a way to remain in this conversation. And uh, so to avoid a kind of embarrassment of either stepping away or remaining silent, we will allow ourselves to remain in certain circumstances where we know we're being drawn into conversations that are going to be harmful in one way or another. And we often do exactly what they say here. We play this little psychological game with ourselves. I won't be affected by this. You know, I, I've heard everything in the book. You know, I'll just, you know, I'm not really, I'm not attracted to it. So I can be immersed in it without it really having an impact upon me. And uh, Isaiah tells us this is a profound uh, illusion. You know, if Adam himself, you know, right from the beginning uh, could be swayed away from the good things of God and be tempted uh, through a kind of conversation, then we should not be under the illusion that, you know, because we have, are, are not initially affected by it, or maybe even many times have not been affected by it, that that is going to be the case each and every uh, experience that we have that often the evil one, as we've talked about many times before, is very patient and can see that pattern arise within us to allow ourselves to remain in these kinds of conversation and then bring it to bear on our spiritual life when, or we're, when we're most vulnerable. And so I think the, the counsel here is what we often hear within the saints, run, run away. Flee, flee the, the situation, uh, or I think we often say, avoid near occasions of sin. And, uh, and but the reason that he gives for following this, I think is extraordinary. And we don't often hear, hear it said. We, we often hear the statement, you know, avoid near occasions of sin. But he says that as you leave, do not try to find out what was even talked about or to hold on even to a word that you heard and ruminate on it, wondering where the conversation went, what you, know, what you, what you missed, because even the demons there too will exploit, he says, the fragment of it. And so don't carry along with yourself some aspect of that conversation uh, in, in any way, any memory of it, because again, 
memory is a very powerful thing and imagination. And so if something was stirred in that conversation, we not only want to flee the, 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 the situation altogether, but try to empty our minds and our hearts of the conversation altogether. And again, this is something that can require deep prayer, you know, to purify the mind and the heart, the imagination, the memory. And that means engaging in unceasing prayer, spiritual reading, study of the scriptures, to fill, the, again, the mind and the heart with the things that are holy. Anthony. In a way, Anthony says, this is an example of giving up a lesser good, awareness of others or a form of fellowship for the benefit of achieving a greater good. Yes, you know, that, uh, and the greatest of goods, I think we would even say that our relationship with God and purity of heart, which is hard won, that it is, you know, can be years, decades, uh, a larger portion of our life of engaging in this kind of spiritual battle, again, depth of prayer. And I mentioned, you know, the purifying of the memory and the imagination, that it is possible by the grace of God and through living this life that's focused upon him and on what is holy to purify even the deepest uh, uh, rooted you know, memories that we have. But if we expose ourselves, all those things can come to the surface or we can lose that purity of heart very quickly. And so it is the, the most precious of things for us that we would want to guard. And again, in our day and age, uh, you know, this idea of uh, letting embarrassment uh, lead us to accept things that we often will hear people talk about, you know, certain movies or television shows or series and talk about how good it is or the writing or how engaging it is. And so there can be this, you know, uh, narrative among our friends and family, and uh, there can be a strong pull uh, in that, you know, to want to be a part of it. And uh, sort of what Anthony says here, a form of fellowship, to want to be able to join in this common discussion of what's going on within the culture. And, uh, and you can see even, you know, how the media plays upon that, you know, the things that sort of people are talking about, no matter how inane, you know, uh, Jennifer and what's his name, Ben getting back together, you know, <laughs> you know, it's being reported on all the news stations as though this is like a worldwide phenomenon that we need to know about. And, uh, but not, nonetheless, you know, that can be innocent, but it still can be a distraction. And why in the world would we be talking about that or thinking about that? And so, but we don't find them I think in reading these past couple paragraphs, we don't just find this kind of negativity about conversation as a whole, you know, that there is conversation that is good and that benefits ourselves and others with fellow strugglers in, in the spiritual, spiritual life. And, but it, in reality though, it is the, the desire for God and to preserve what God desires for us, which is this intimacy with him that leads us to embrace this kind of discipline. Okay.
So we're not, you know, simply seeking to alienate ourselves from the world and others. I mean, there, there wouldn't be charity, certainly, in that. Okay. So, Abba Mark, do not listen to other people's wicked words, for in your desire to do so, the impressions of the wicked words are engraved on your soul. When you hear evil words, be angry with yourself, not with the man who spoke them, for he who repents wicked tidings is also wicked. Oh, I'm sorry, for he who repeats wicked tidings is also wicked. So, you know, we, we don't want to shove the responsibility off onto other people or for those who might be speaking in ways that are harmful or speaking about things that, that are wicked, that, you know, when we uh, repeat them, even to ourselves in our own minds, we're, we are the ones who are responsible for it. And we're also the ones responsible for exposing ourselves to this conversation repeatedly with, within our lives too. And so that can be, you know, an easy out for us. Well, I'm not the one who brought it up. Well, I'm not the one who is, is talking about it, but we might be the one who has has never said anything about it or brought up the, the issue that, you know, this is uncomfortable conversation and I'd rather not have it or try to redirect the conversation uh, in, a, in another way or to another area that isn't offensive or perhaps we've never left, you know, a conversation in such a way that we make it clear that you know, it isn't acceptable to us. And there can be, again, all kinds of things that keep us from doing that. Embarrassment, fear, anxiety about how we will be looked at, you know, whether we'll be scorned by others. Any comments? Paul. You wonder what engagement he had that made him think that. I can think of a few that I've had that I should have avoided. Uh, I imagine, you know, it wouldn't be all that different, I think, from what we experience on a day-to-day -day basis. You know, we can very easily slip into these kinds of conversations where, you know, something strikes us as funny or, it, you know, is a bit bawdy or, you know, it just, and, you know, will be drawn in again, I think with this getting back to Anthony's thing too, this idea of fellowship of trying to create this connection with others. And we can do it in all kinds of, of different ways. I mean, guys do talking about sports, you know, not guy, only guys now, I think equally men and women, but I think that's, that's one way, but, you know, also, you know, through, you know, kind of humor, uh, that to sort of make conversations fun, but oftentimes it will go someplace where it's, you know, the humor is at somebody else's expense or becomes something uh, that is corrupting in some form or, or another. Okay, next paragraph on page 192. Avoid acquisitive people and avoid acquiring things yourselves, yourself, removing yourself from those who live luxuriously, as well as from luxury itself. And so this is a hard one. You know, we, we live in a culture where we have a lot and uh, we might not see ourselves as being particularly acquisitive 
you know, in terms of, uh, of acquiring things. But uh, again, you know, I think we would have to admit when we step back that we have access to, to so much, you know, Amazon, you know, makes things so easy to get a hold of, you know, one click of a button and, uh, you know, books, I think are a big one for me. You know, it's, we always think, oh, this is the book that I need, or this is the book that's going to help me understand this or that. And uh, I remember going, I went through my library about a half a year ago, and I got rid of 13 boxes of books. And, you know, some of those were pretty old and that I'd used for a long period of time, but the 13 boxes of books, that's a lot of books. And I still have, have quite a bit. And it's always embarrassing when you find a book that still has the plastic wrap on it so that you never, you never looked at it. And so uh, we all, I think, have those things in our life that in our mind, we tell ourselves we need that. And so I think what the fathers are saying here is that we, we don't want to, you know, get into these kinds of relationships where that's a common theme. We certainly don't want to do that with others, and we don't want to be exposed to that ourselves, where we, we again, are forming our identity or our sense of self-worth by what we have. And we can vie with people about, you know, what we've re re recently, you know, purchased. And, you know, it can give us this little bit of a high to let someone know what we've recently acquired. And... And some of those things can seem to be very good to us. And yet I think what the fathers remind us about is that they can become distractions, enormous distractions for us. And they can kind of strip our life from simplicity because they shift our focus off of the simple movement of the mind and the heart to God. And so if our life is cluttered, even if that clutter is lovely, it can all be a distraction for us. He goes on to say, avoid licentious people as you would, uh, as you would licentiousness. For if the mere recollection of words disturbs the mind, how much more disturbing it is to converse and to spend time with those who utter them. So, you know, avoid those who are, you know, have more of a promiscuous, uh, sort of nature or attitude or view of things uh, because if words really become a distraction to us then someone who's talking about things such as this or acting acting out on it uh, so much more does it uh, afflict us you know that uh, fills the mind and imagination with uh, you know things that can really be overwhelming and so it's just as bad they're telling us as being licentious oneself as it is to be around those where that's the constant dialogue draw near instead to righteous men and through them you will draw near to god associate with those who possess humility and you will learn their character by experience for if it is beneficial merely to contemplate your memories of these people how much more beneficial is the instruction of their own mouths? So, you know, just the opposite is true by our contact with those who are seeking a holy life or have obtained a certain level of purity of heart. 
and holiness. And so it can be instructive to us by the way that they live our life or by their, their teachings. And this is why so many went out to the desert to engage these, these monks, uh, that in their solitude, they came to know, I think what is most important and precious for us, you know, how it is that we understand what it is to be a human being and what is going on within the mind and the heart. And, uh, and so to seek in our day-to-day -day life through our readings of the fathers or, uh, you know, our reading of the scriptures uh, to immerse ourselves in, in the wisdom of those who've gone before us. Anthony, too much buying and selling and we don't know how to be, but only to become. Thus Americans are great in markets and inventions, but we neglect basic metaphysics about life. And we are now existing as several coexisting lost generations. Wow, very, very well put. Uh, especially the, the, the first part, we don't know how to be, but only to become. That we are often uncomfortable with ourselves. And uh, before we began the group, Mark Kelly was talking about uh, giving blood today or platelets. And how, yeah, I'm sorry, I hope you don't mind me mentioning your little story, uh, but uh, the encouragement of the people working at the blood bank to put on the television, you know, because it was going to take an hour and a half, did you say, or two hours for this process. And so the assumption there is that we need to be distracted, that we couldn't possibly be comfortable with ourselves and our own, what's in our own mind and our hearts, or that a person could like the, the silence or be at peace with the silence. There can be the sense that we constantly have to have something on uh, or going on in front of us to keep our, keep our attention. And that betrays a kind of discomfort with our own being that, and more importantly, I think with our relationship with God, you know, the, the deeper that relationship becomes, the more one begins to crave silence and stillness, because it is there that the, the deepest encounter with God takes place. And so it begins to be something that we thirst for, rather than dread or try to escape. And we, many times before, we've talked about how easy uh, it is to escape these days and how we invent newer and newer ways to do, do so. You know, the whole, you know, whole thing with virtual reality, it's become, you know, becoming more and more real for us. You know, we have to find these way, better and better ways to distract ourselves. Because I think there are even previous generations, you know, where, you know, kids could play, you know, for hours and it not have to be overstimulating of the mind. You, know, you could be out in the woods in the creek you know, turning over stones and find, finding one of the crawdads or whatever they are. I remember doing that. Or, you know, even things like Hot Wheels for kids. I know that's old, low tech for a lot of people here. But I remember being able to sort of absorb myself in that for hours on end in silence and not be undone by that. And uh, there is this, you know, discomfort now, I think, though, with some of the things that we do because it agitates and it hyperstimulates the mind in, in ways that we aren't often aware of. 
that play for children often isn't something that uh, is overstimulating or doesn't need to be. But I think there's something that is involved with, you know, videos and things where there is this kind of, uh, you know, it seems so real and it becomes, you know, more and more powerful uh, that it agitates the mind and it kind of can steal a child's uh, piece of heart. And I remember, not even a child, I remember once going uh, with my old community to see a movie and it was one of those Spider-Man movies. And one of the guys uh, insisted that we go to, uh, so maybe somebody could help me out. It's one of those screens like IMAX or Supermax or whatever it's, it's called. And you're, it's an, this enormous screen and enormous speakers that are so loud and there's so much going around. You can't even take it in all at once because the screen is so large and you're seeing things out of your peripheral, peripheral vision as well as what's immediately in front of you. And I remember walking out of the theater feeling sort of sick by it. And all the rest of the guys said the same thing, that it was so hyper-stimulating that it wasn't even enjoyable to watch it. And... Uh, and so if that's our experience, just from something like that, you, you wonder, uh, getting back again to what Anthony said here, you know, what, what is going on when we, when we don't know how just to be, or where we can't sit on the front porch on a swing and just be attentive to what's going on around us, let alone be attentive to God. Okay, I'll get off my soapbox and we'll move on to the, the next uh, letter J from the Gerontikon. Seven brothers once came to Alexandria to Abba Macarius in order to test him. And they said, tell us, Father, how we are to be saved. The elder said with a groan, brethren, each of us knows how he is saved, but we do not want to be saved. They said to him, we very much want to be saved, but evil thoughts do not allow us. What then should we do? The elder replied to them, if you are monks, why do you consort with worldly people or go near places where worldly people live? Those who have renounced the world and wear the holy schema, yet abide among worldly people, are deceiving themselves, for all of their labor is in vain, and they are far from the fear of God. From worldly people, monks gain nothing other than respite for, for the flesh. And where there is fleshly respite, there the fear of God cannot dwell, especially in a monk. So the schema, you know, the, the kind of role. And, you know, over the course of time, uh, there are certain rankings among monks, uh, and uh, the schema monk or shema monk is not something that's typically granted because it's this deeper commitment to the role of prayer, to silence and stillness for the sake of the world, not for, simply for the sake of the individual, but one makes this sacrifice for others by embracing this deep role of absolute silence and prayer. And uh, so it's in, in a kind of a, an embracing of the cross for the sake of others, this, the, the cross of being living in this exile, worldly kind of exile. 
And so he's saying, you know, what value is there for one who's embraced this kind of role then to be going back to the very thing that he left in order to embrace it? All that you are doing is undermining yourself. And so you might give yourself, he says, a brief respite to the flesh because you're giving yourself over to engaging others. You know, phew, I was able to talk to somebody. I couldn't stand that silence any longer. But in doing so and giving yourself this respite, you undermine the, the, the fear of God, the sense of fidelity to the role that you've embraced and have taken a vow to embrace before him. And for all of us, you know, I think it's, you know, our baptismal vows, you know, our commitment to live for him, uh, to have a hatred for sin and for evil and to seek to avoid it in, in our life. And so if this is our commitment, you know, to embrace the grace that God has given to us, that flows to us from the cross, that is given to us in the sacraments, then, you know, what value is there in having received that gift and committing, committed, committing ourselves to Christ if we are turning back constantly for this fleshly respite where we allow our, our passions, our appetites, our bodily desires to dictate what it is that we do and draw us back into the things that lead us away from purity of heart. And so the, the struggle of the, the desert monk isn't that different and isn't, I would even say, different from our struggle. You know, certainly the, the, the place where the battle is fought and the, you know, the, the, the depth of, you know, the geographical setting, the, the depth of the silence there is. But I think the battle, the kind of war, war that is going on uh, is, is the same. And a little bit further on here, you know, one of the monks makes this remark. He says, you don't want to be fighting multiple wars at one time. You know, if you're going to fight a war, fight one war. But why increase, you know, why increase the battlefields for yourself by exposing yourself to all these other things that are going to seek to affect or afflict you or that the demons can use? And so you know that you're going to have to fight, but keep the, the battle in this one arena, you know, with, within the mind and the heart, and don't purposely expose yourself to things that it is, it's really going to in, increase the, 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 the battle a thousandfold. Okay. Any comments on this section? I thought the question was, uh, brethren, each of us knows how to be saved, but do uh, we do not want to be saved? You know, it sounds like an odd thing to say to fellow monks and, uh, and to call into question. And he's not only calling it into question for them, but for himself as well. You know, that uh, each of us knows how, you know, it's been revealed to us by God in the most powerful of ways, but we do not want it. And in some of the past groups I've mentioned, this experience of somebody drowning 
and so again, I apologize for those who heard this for the tenth time or hearing this for the tenth time. But uh, when somebody's drowning in the surf, you know, often the the person who goes out to save them uh, because they're they're going under and they're desperate, and they'll pull them down with them. Often the person has to swim out and even knock them out, grab them from behind, the, you know, around the neck, and then drag them to safety. And, uh, and it's often been uh, commented on that the person who is saved from drowning can develop an animosity towards the person who has saved him because it's, it can actually be a humiliating thing to be dragged by the hair to the beach, you know, to have water pumped out of your chest uh, because you got pulled under by the riptide or you're just a bad swimmer. And uh, everybody's gathered around while you're, you're choking up water and they're praising the person who saved you and dragged you to the shore. But uh, a kind of anger can be directed towards the person who has saved them because it's a humbling thing to be acknowledged in that kind of concrete way that one could not save oneself. One could not get oneself out of the, out of the surf. And it's a humbling thing for all of us as human beings to know and acknowledge the need for a savior, that it's not by our own efforts or not by our own natural virtues, no matter how hard we work to perfect them, that brings about our salvation. It comes to us solely by the grace of God and his mercy. And, uh, and as we enter into the spiritual life more and more deeply, we see how true that is. And because we see with a greater clarity, the depth of our own, own poverty. And there can be part of us both on a psychological and spiritual level that will resist that. You know, that psychologically we develop defenses to prevent us from seeing truths or acknowledging certain truths about ourselves or things that we've experienced because they're too traumatic for us. And so we develop these elaborate defenses in order to protect our psychological stability. And uh, on a spiritual level, we can do that as, as well, you know, that we can put on religion and spirituality to a, a certain level and engage in it on this certain level to, in order to give us this experience of all being right in our relationship with God or of our being good people or that we are on this path to salvation, that we're walking the path that Christ has called us to walk. And yet it can be, there can be an illusion in it that we are holding on to this image of self that preserves self-esteem, this kind of vision of our, ourselves as being good or doing good or not being in need of God's mercy. You know, it's, it can be very difficult to acknowledge the, the poverty of our sin and how quickly we can move into it. And that it requires God, you know, moment by moment, you know, in these acts of mercy to draw us away from it, to protect us from it. And we've talked about this before, you know, how, you know, saintly souls be, begin to see themselves as the greatest of sinners. You know, that the purer their heart becomes, they begin to see with a greater clarity just how deep their poverty is. 
And so they lose that capacity to maintain that illusion. And that can be a hard, hard thing. Religious people are not without their illusions. And I often think that we have the greatest and the most powerful illusions, you know, that we create for ourselves. And one of them could be, you know, that we are, are holy. Or the opposite, you know, that there's no hope for us. You know, there, you know we can fall to either extreme. Okay, any comments, thoughts? Okay. For the monk is called a monk precisely because he converses with God night and day and thinks only of divine things, having nothing on earth. A monk who spends time with worldly people or stays with them for more than a day or two at most does this out of necessity or because he cannot survive in any other way, having either to sell his handiwork or to buy what he needs. Returning speedily to his monastery, he offers genuine repentance to God for the one day or two days which he spent in the world to take care of the indispensable necessities of life. And so we're given here a picture of what it is to be a monk. And I think there has been sort of this development over the course of the, the centuries and in modern times too of you know, monks becoming more and more involved in worldly work. And part of that is you know, what is demanded in order to be able to support a monastery and to support the monks and uh, you know, I think often monasteries in the past or places like Carmel's were had benefactors that would provide for them their basic needs in order that they could live this life. But uh, in more recent times, you know, we'll find, you know, monks involved in education, you know, of running universities, schools, things such as that, and where there's incredible demand upon their time, attention, energy, and where they are often involved in the things of, of the world. Uh, but the initial meaning of monk is really one is who does exactly what uh, is described here in the Drontikon. It's one who, who converses with God day and night, that this is really the essence of the life, of his life. And so he purposely separates himself from everything in order to be able to do that. Even to the point that uh, it's said here that, you know, when he's forced of necessity to go and engage others, to sell whatever they make, to provide for their, their meager needs, uh, that they would make repentance for that engagement in, in any way that they might have engaged uh, in it uh, in some way that was uh, a fleshly kind of satisfaction for them, anything that might pull them away or might have pulled them away from that attention, soul attention on God. From our perspective, that might seem extreme, but again, for the, the monk who has purposely entered into that life, one begins to understand it. And so when we listen to it, how do we, how do we view this? You know, are, are there ways that we are stepping away from those opportunities 
of intimacy with God or intimacy, say, even with those that he's uh, brought into our life or given us the care of or, or for those who care for us, you know, or in terms of helping each other along this path of salvation, you know, have we stepped away from those things and that relationship with God by entering into so many different things that we've uh, get, made our life have this frenetic pace and become so busy and complicated that it's where our lives are out of control to the point that there is no time for prayer. You know, that it, it seems uh, again to be one more thing on the list to be done rather than the thing that shapes our, our very existence. And, you know, simplicity of, of life is, uh, again, something that has to be worked toward and, to, and created. And, uh, and we often work across purposes there. You know, I think we, we make it very difficult for ourselves. And part of it is because of some of the things that we've talked about. You know, the pursuit of all the things that we think that we need then clutters our life. And then we clutter our minds with other things that it really makes it very difficult for us to be alone with God and to be attentive to him, to listen to him. You know, if Isaac the Syrian is right, that the language of God is silence or the language of the kingdom is silence, that it's here, you know, that we allow God to speak that word that is equal to himself, then why isn't it something that we seek out and foster? And I think this is where the temptation lies for us and where the evil one seeks to guide us, you know, to constantly be distracted. And it's those little moments like in Mark's story, you know, about giving blood, how unusual that seems that a person would want that, not want the TV on and would be comfortable with that, would preserve, would, uh, uh, would uh, I'm sorry, um, it's getting a little late at night, I'm uh, hard, <laughs> having a hard time, would prefer to hold on to the silence rather than be distracted for a couple of hours. I think it's uh, Anthony and then Daniel. Anthony, St. John of Damascus, whether I will or not, O Lord, save me. Quick, quick, for I perish. Paraphrase from the Melkite Publicans prayer book, right? Marine, is it like piano? It comes with much practice before one can play Bach. Uh, speaking of this kind of silence or stillness, is that what you had? Yes, you know, I think it is and requires, you know, nobody goes into that practice willingly all the time. And so the fathers are pretty clear that often we have to force ourselves to pray uh, because, the, uh, you know, the pull is always going to be back to the things that stimulate the senses in one way or another or stimulate the mind. Daniel, like the Pharisee and the publican, the delusion of the holy person versus the truth of the sinner, right? The one who ends up being closer to God is the one who is beating his breast and acknowledging his sin. 
whereas the one who you know believed that he was living this righteous life because he, he had the external actions and behaviors in, in the sense of following the law his heart was actually very dark because it was filled with pride you remember he was comparing himself to the publican you know this one who was a public sinner but in acknowledging his own need he is actually placed in a right relationship with god and then from daniel again the language of god is silence is something i thought about recently and why silence and because it's silence that allows him to be heard like the gentle breeze that elijah heard he doesn't replace our voice he waits to be heard that's right you know that god doesn't overpower us you know, there is something you know, about the nature of love that involves freedom and this willingness to enter into that relationship with the other. And the other that we are speaking about entering into this relationship is, is God. And a relationship that, you know, he has made possible for us in such a way that we can enter into the very depths of his life. And this is where I think the importance of silence comes in, that we've talked in the past about the limitations that we have in terms of intellect, our understanding, our reason, that no matter how beautiful are the things that we read or hear about God, or the things that we can conceive in our mind about God, uh, they might be expressive of, of certain truths, but they aren't God in and of himself. And so th this is why faith is often described as being dark and obscure, because we have to let go of the limitations that we have of intellect and reason, allow God to draw us into, into this kind of way of knowing him. It is a knowledge of comprehension, but it's by faith, a dark, obscure knowing. Remember, John of the Cross describes it. And similarly, to hear the word that God would speak to us that is equal to himself. It means allowing all these things, including our greatest faculties as human beings to be stilled in order that he might make himself known to us in this way as he is in himself without those limitations. And in this world, it's always going to be something that is, you know, uh, cloudy to us, like looking in a, you know, mere, or seeing through a mere dimly or, you know, along those lines that Paul describes, you know, it's, it's something that's going to be incomplete, but nonetheless, God's light can pierce through that and he can reveal himself to us. Deborah, did you have a thought? Were you raising your hand? Okay. Did you want to just speak it or? To, okay, there you go. I'm a scheduled a door at my parish and I really struggle with just sitting in silence. I feel like I should be praying a rosary or reading about the saints doing something. How can I develop the practice of sitting still? My brain is always racing through stuff. Yeah, that's, I think that's normal. I think that is our struggle. And all the things that you mentioned are not an obstacle to that silence, but I think are a way of moving our minds and our hearts to that which is holy but also from moving from that multiplicity, that scatteredness to simplicity, to clarify and direct our focus upon God. So certainly praying the rosary or reading something from the saints or reading from the scriptures are all the ways 
The fathers often describe it as the warming of the heart. And so we might uh, engage in the rosary or another devotion to stoke the fires of our, of our desire for God and eventually allow that then to draw us into a deeper intimacy with him. Uh, I think what we find in you know, rising out of the monastic tradition is the emphasis upon simplicity in that prayer and uh, an emphasis too on uh, non-discursive meditation uh, in order to be able to move into that stillness more quickly. Uh, and so to take something like the, the Jesus prayer, or even to be able to trust in the power of the name of Jesus to draw us where it needs to be, that, uh, that this, the name of our Lord has such power within it that it scatters all demons and temptations and can draw us into the stillness of intimacy. Today, I was reading from St. Ign Ignatius Bryankinov. I think is how you pronounce it. I can never get his name down. But he wrote a book on the Jesus prayer. And he, uh, there's this little section where he describes for beginners how one goes about this. And he says, you, you might do just 12 Jesus prayers to begin with, with a prostration with each of them. So you allow yourself to become focused upon the Lord with love and devotion, to still the mind and the heart, to use the Jesus prayer to draw yourself to him, and then make a bodily prostration to involve the whole self, to humble oneself before the feet of the Lord, sort of like the, the, the woman who comes to anoint him or to be at the foot of the cross. And he says, you know, for beginners, simply to do that a dozen times, you know, at a prayerful pace is sufficient, you know, that we aren't in this race, nor should we think that we would want to leap up the ladder in one stride, as it were, but to allow oneself to enter into that practice and allow to form and shape the mind and the heart that a dozen of these prayers done well can draw us into that stillness very quickly. And one would say, I wouldn't say that one is drawn into that perfectly, you know, but in a couple of months time, one can begin to experience something of the fruit of that, the greater comfort in that stillness and silence, and even the desire for it to begin to emerge. But to begin with, I think it often requires us to force ourselves, especially on certain days. Josie, or is that Josh? I'm sorry, or Joseph. Okay, uh, is it advisable to think about God in the abstract or should we focus on Jesus as God to stay out of delusions in the face of the really mysterious idea of God? Well, <clears throat> You know, I think the, uh, you know, the idea of meditation, uh, you know, of, of looking at, say, particular stories within the gospel to make use of the intellect, reason, imagination is not problematic. In fact, as I said, it can be something that stirs our devotion, but also deepens our intimacy and desire for God. 
Uh, and so even monks, I think, would be engaged in that process, you know, as we seek to draw closer to Christ, to know him. Uh, and we, you know, work from the outside in, as it were. And so we make use of, you know, all the faculties that we have to aid us to, in doing that and allow God to draw us closer to him through making use of this kind of prayer. Uh, but within, again, if we leap to the, the West here with say like John of the Cross again, he says that, you know, the, all this prayer is legitimate. And, but as God draws us into that deeper intimacy with him, uh, again, all of these things are going to have their limitations, no matter how beautiful those meditations might be. And so he describes that there is a point that God will draw us into this greater prayer of silence or stillness, where we have to let go of this, this initial kind of prayer and allow ourselves to be drawn into the prayer of the quiet. And he says it can be difficult. It can be like this ligature I mentioned before, a break, where we'll want to go back because we think, our, our prayer is not being as fruitful, or I'm not having the same consolations or insights that I had before. But in reality, it's God drawing us deeper into faith, this kind of dark, obscure knowing. And so as he does that, our prayer becomes more and more simple. And so uh, it's not because that prayer is bad. It's just that there are there, these limitations. Now, there, there is the issue that you describe here of the danger of what they call prelest or delusion, these kinds of illusions that we can fall into, you know, uh, where we, you know, see angels or, you know, saints talk to us. And, you know, one can be, you know, drawn down this path of great error, unless one is putting that to the test. And I think this was one of the reasons that in the East that we, we find the fathers really wanting to move away from that, that more is to be gained in this silent faith and attentiveness to God than from any kind of vision, that there is always a greater danger in being overly attentive to such things. Uh, because the evil one can use us, use them to guide us astray. And so that is a distinct feature, I think, of the Eastern uh, Christian spirituality, this focus on its simplicity and stillness, remembrance of God, of the turning of the mind and the heart to him constantly throughout the day, the trust again in the power of the name of Jesus that we find this within the scriptures, we find it in the earliest writings of the fathers and all the way through the spiritual tradition. So there is this constant thread that we find both East and West uh, of this movement into greater simplicity of prayer, uh, but also this, this trust in the, the power of the name of Christ himself. The cloud of unknowing in the West, it's written, uh, by, it's an anonymous uh, author, but it's very much along these lines where the simplicity of the prayer is emphasized. So if you've never had the opportunity to read it, it would be a, a wonderful resource, The Cloud of Unknowing.
It's uh, thought to be, you know, one of the English mystics. Uh, there's some speculation as to who it might have been, but is a classic in spiritual literature. Okay. So that brings us to, uh, oh, Anthony just finished it. Drawing on the Greek father sounds very orthodox. Yes, it does. And uh, I remember being struck by that. So great work. So that brings us to a little bit after 8.30. So why don't we close there for the night? Uh, I know that was a lot to get through, a lot to ponder there that was very challenging, uh, especially this, this last one. And, uh, but again, we'll come back to it and pick up there next week. Okay. So when we close this, as always, with our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. And the Lord be with you. And may God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Yeah. Peace be with you. Thank, thank you. you. Have a great night. Yeah, thank you, Father David. Thank you.